0: From the early 1920s through World War II, the nation's commercial heart of country music was here in Chicago. Don't believe me? My guest today, Mark Guarino, has a new book called Country and Midwestern, Chicago in the History of Country Music and the Folk Revival that will change your mind. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Before we get started, a little background on Mark. He is a contributing writer to The Washington Post, where he frequently covers Chicago and the Midwest. His writing also appears in The New York Times, The Guardian, Crane Chicago Business, The Chicago Tribune, Writers, The Chicago Sun-Times, New York Magazine, ABC News, and others. I sat down with Mark recently at Carol's Pub on North Clark in Uptown to talk about the book. Before we get to the book, let's talk a little bit about you for a moment. If I read your bio correctly, in addition to all the publications and broadcast news outlets you've written for, you've also penned nine full-length plays, 12 short plays, and even a radio play. So some of your works have been produced by Straldock Theatre, The House Theatre of Chicago, Walkabout Theatre, The Curious Theatre Branch, Zebra Crossing Theatre, and Chicago Dramatists. And now the book. From where does this drive originate?
1: (laughs) Well, I I always think that I feel like I I was more of a playwright Um, going back. I was always interested in theater in high school and in college, but I went to Loyola right up the street here, so I feel like we're kind of in my somewhat old neighborhood and um, at Loyola, I, I wasn't had no interest in being an actor or a director, but I was always a writer. And uh, so the only you know, the outlet there to really write was the college newspaper. And so I started that the first week of my freshman year, and I stayed on that paper and then ended up running it the last two years of my college days. And so um, I always felt that journalism in a way was a and is a, a way to kind of get into people's lives and learn about people, which is great stuff for theater, for fiction writing. And I think that's something that I, it was an advantage I had, I think, of other creative writers, because I think you can think in your head what people are about, and um, but if you don't really know or interact with people who are different from you um, in age, race, ethnicity, the location of the country, everything... You're going to have a pretty myopic view of the world. And, and I found like a, a lot of writers just don't really have a lot of life experience. And journalism really, boy, it gives you that. I mean, I just came from being in uh, covering a tornado and down in Rolling Fork, Mississippi, in the Mississippi Delta for the last three days. I got back last night. And, um, you know, just it just, you, you get, you know, meeting people completely different from you, going through circumstances you'll never really go through, but really connecting with them. And so we saw that journalism and playwriting and creative writing are all kind of meshed up in one ball. And that's how I saw it when I was a teenager, and that's the way I see it as now as an aged, decrepit person.
0: <laughs> Your book is called Country in Midwestern, Chicago in the History of Country, Music, and the Folk Revival. Rolls right off the tongue. For those hearing about this for the first time, why isn't Chicago more well
1: known for its role in the development of country music? I think there's a couple of reasons. Um, one is a really weird answer: is that people just didn't weren't aware of it. It's not a history that kind of continued over time and was retold over time, and so I think just people were not really aware of it. Whereas you know, with the blues and jazz. Because of Chicago's sin of segregation, it was really relegated to specific parts of the city, and it produced real major stars who changed the world, like Muddy Waters and Howl Wolf, and the list is really, really long. And so it's very recognizable. But with country music, it was literally less about stars, but it was really about the kind of experimentation and innovation of the music here. And that persisted over decades, and it moved around a lot. And so didn't have that identifiable neighborhood or part of the city or a person. You could wrap it all around, that story around. John Prine's probably the closest to that. In fact, it's it's really amazing. In the book, I talk about John Prine, but I really the section's really about his family. His family really is emblematic of Chicago's connection to country music. They came up here from Kentucky. His dad was a country music fan. His dad listened to country music radio here. His older brother was into old-timey folk music here and was really a major player in sort of the folk revival scene here in the 60s. Got involved with the Old Town School. This all happened before John Prine wrote one one song. And so I think it's really because um, of, of all those things. And then on top of all that, Chicago... The the public officials here have done a really lousy job of promoting its own culture, and um, it's done a terrible job promoting jazz and blues and gospel. Only until it's gotten better, it's definitely gotten better. But as long I've written as a journalist, I've written about this for a lot of different publications for many years. With that puzzling question, why Chicago, unlike other cities, just does hasn't really fully embraced? I you know I just came up from. The Mississippi Delta and throughout Mississippi you see cultural markers everywhere this person was born here this sound was produced here in little parts of that state that there are barely any people but it brings people in and tells it tells the story of the land otherwise it just looks like old buildings and just flat land Chicago just never really did that and I think there's always been this tension between the city officials here and the people who produce the music bar owners Small business owners. Chicago has a really terrible history of um, city hall against those type of people. And music comes from bars. We're in right, we're in one right now. My book has whole history of bars shutting down because of the city of Chicago. So it's just it's a complicated history between the city and, and uh, the music. And yeah, I, so I think that on top of like just the nature of how the music developed here, are, kind of help answer that question.
0: After learning about your book someone on Twitter posted something along the lines of oh my gosh finally someone wrote a book I can't wait to read that I was never going to write which made me laugh. Why has no one tackled this subject before?
1: I asked myself the same question Um, and so about uh, boy you know I I started writing this book about 10 years ago but probably 10 years ago before that I, I wrote a lot about the stuff in the book as a journalist and and I was so into um, all the all country stuff that was here and and, uh, and then I started learning more about it through being a great thing about journalism. It forces you to become an expert at something you know just by pursuing it and um, and I found out like, oh, there's nothing beyond like newspaper articles here and there there's nothing written about this and so why is that? And I think it just kind of goes back to it's a really complicated history and it's very very and, and it's, it's not necessary linear. You really have to connect a lot of threads together. One thing, the joy of writing this book, and I think the reason it took so long, is that in writing the book, which was much bigger and more complex than I thought it was going to be, was that I discovered all these threads between all these chapters that seemed to, you know, areas, periods of time that you'd think had nothing to do with each other, had a lot to do with each other. And I think that's sort of like you only discover that through the writing of it. It was nothing that you could just step back and just, you know, pop into your head. You really had to discover, like, wow, actually, this generation really... If there's overlap with the coming generation, and and so um, there's a thread that runs through the entire book, a couple of threads that run through the entire book, and, and that was kind of the joy of it, and I think that, yeah, you only know it by just... Someone's had to sit down and do it. I just think, like, wow, well, you know, it's like... I had a really rare opportunity with this book, you know, it's as if, like, no one ever wrote a book about Chicago jazz or Chicago blues, it'd be unfathomable, you know, and, um, and I actually had an opportunity to write about something that's really, really um, strong and important and affected a lot of people's lives, and no one had done it yet, so I guess I just kind of was just the dumb one to start do it first.
0: After a wonderful forward by Chicago's alt-country's own Robbie Foulkes, you present a thoroughly researched book with hundreds of interviews, research that took you all over the States, right? Yep. And took 10 years. Was the process exhilarating? Was it exhausting? Was it gratifying? Is it a little bit of everything? <laughs>
1: Well, I did, I've never written a book before, and so I think the nature of, I mean, I tend to do that stuff that I, I just kind of jump right in, and just I'll figure it out, and I think I never took a journalism class in my life, I was an English major, but yet I ran the school paper, and so I, I've just never been a person to, I've been the type of person of learning by doing, I think that kind of makes, that just, it's just always been the way I've been, and so... Um, Early on, there's probably a fear of, like, how do I do this? And I thought, you know, I'm going to do it my own way, and I'm going to make up the rules my own way, and I'm going to set—I'm really good with deadlines because I'm a journalist, so I, I've had to write a thousand words in an hour before, you know? And so I just kind of structured it, so I created the structure, and then I just kind of created an outline and just kind of went ahead. And then that's where you learn— you really know nothing because once you get into it you discover new things and one person will tell you about another person another person will tell you another person and then it's like I have this fear that I'm gonna I don't know everything and so it really had to slow down to kind of make sure that every you know t was crossed and i was dotted the exhilarating thing about it was um and this is just part of the journalism thing too it's just the same exhilaration I had this weekend and down in, the, down in Mississippi, is that I really like talking with people. I really like interviewing people, and I really like getting people's voices. And with this book, I met people who had never been interviewed before, um, people who just found it weird that out of the blue, I just this guy contacted them and wanted to talk to them about something they did decades ago. And it led to big memories gushing out. It led to a lot of tears and a lot of just like, people just like going places that they never thought they'd, they they hadn't been in a long time. And that to me is like, that human connection to me is really, really important. I, I consider it a real privilege to be able to do that for this book and, and for other stuff that I've done. And um, so that was really the exhilarating thing to tell the stories of people who, you know, I think needed to be told. And I have to say that a lot of the people I interviewed, quite a lot have since died since I've interviewed them and um, and that kind of really hurt if there's any kind of like pain of the book it's like you know I really wish that some of the people could see you know one guy got the, the books are going out this week and one guy who I interviewed um, out of the blue I didn't know him at all and I saw him on social media he, he wrote and literally wrote on social media a couple of years ago this guy called me out of the blue and wanted to talk to me about like playing folk music in the 60s at this little club and the book arrived today, and I turned to page 117, and and I felt, you know, it, it just, like, you know, I kind of served as, like, a witness to, like, you know, yeah, you did something, you contributed to a longer story, and now it's there, and so um, I feel, I feel really proud about that.
0: And the story is preserved forever. Now it's in a book. You it's know? in a book. Even if he didn't record or his recordings are lost to the, the is, ages, yep. his story continues.
1: Yeah, I mean, music is not about the stars. The music, the history of music, is not the stars represent one percent or maybe even less of the history of music in this country. We get fooled thinking it's the opposite, but it's really that. So we're sitting in a room where just thousands of musicians have come through and. You probably don't know any of their names, but they touch people's hearts and they did what they love. And, um, yeah, it's a beautiful thing.
0: Getting to the, uh, the, the crux of what we're talking about. <laughs> For listeners, music in general received a huge boost as radio became more popular. Uh, according to Mark's book, in November of 1921, there were roughly 1,300 radios. That's actual radios in Chicago homes. When radio station KYW began broadcasting the Chicago Civic Opera, the number jumped to 20,000 by the end of the winter opera season. Less than a year later, there were 75,000 radios in Chicago homes. Kids from, this is the part that really made me laugh, kids from Crane, Lane Tech, Harrison, and Washburn, uh, those are technical high schools here in Chicago, spent their summers building radio kits and selling them for a profit. I love that. I love that.
1: (laughs) There's actually a lot in there that, because we had space, we took a lot out, and it was amazing that I never really knew what a technical high school is, and um, that's what it was. It was these schools that had these very advanced engineering programs and the demand for radio was so hot during this short period of time, they couldn't make enough. And so these students were like churning them out. And um, and off, you know, back then radios were just a battery with wires and for an antenna, and there weren't a lot of stations. And um, uh, you know, it was this, it was truly this momentous part time in our country, one of many since then. But this one was the first where technology was entering home really fast. And for that, just the same thing with the internet. You had to find content to fill all those, you know, those. now you had a thing that you could fill a content for, you know, 24 hours. And so, yeah, that, that to me I loved, is that it was all hands on deck to get those radios out.
0: You know, obviously the radio brought a lot of content into people's houses. One of the first introductions many people living in Chicago had to country music was the WLS Barn Dance. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Sure. So the Barn Dance was... Um, uh, Really, it was, a, it was a show that started the first month that WLS went on the air. WLS went on the air in 1924, and the same month, at the end of the month, they tried the barn dance, and it was really an experiment. It was an experiment to have musicians come in, play some songs, and, and, but it was such a hit that a show was built about it, and the show lasted decades, and for the first, um, really, 25 years, it was the preeminent show that really presented songs from rural uh, America for rural listeners and urban listeners and it was became this package show that presented this sort of imaginary world uh, rooted in rural America specifically in kind of the upland south Appalachia and uh, it created these major recording stars they all lived here a lot of them lived here in Uptown and Edgewater and it predated the Grand Ole Opry just by a year but the Barn Dance was much bigger than the Grand Ole Opry and much more influential than the Grand Ole Opry for at least until the end of World War II. And so these, you know, Hollywood movies, they the stars, you know, starred in a couple Hollywood movies. They toured throughout the U.S. It became a coast-to-coast broadcast from here, and it, it so its influence was completely significant and it produced a stable of stars every Saturday night on a live broadcast from the South Loop.
0: It's incredible to think of all these musicians in a studio like waiting for their cue from the radio guy like go you know and and they would play. That's fantastic. By the way uh, speaking of stars one of the many things I learned from your book in 1932, Gene Autry, the singing cowboy, and his new wife Ida May, which is a great name, <laughs> yeah, right. which I think more women should be named Ida Mae, moved into their first home together at 4501 North Malden Street, again not far from here. And Gene Autry worked for the WLS Barn Dance for four years. Amazing to think of that. Because, yeah, you know, and
1: that was before, you know, he became a big star, kind of promoting, if you believe it, believe it or not, in the twenties. There was sort of a Western craze going on. Um, people really embraced, um, had this fascination with the West. With And I think it's probably at the same time these cities were becoming sort of very industrialized, very crowded, that the West seemed really like this utopia. And the, and the figure of the cowboy, and then the figure of the singing cowboy. And Gene Autry was one of the first, if not the first. And so... He came here from Oklahoma. He had been in a couple small radio stations, but really he became a star in WLS, and that basically propelled him to Hollywood. He left from Chicago to go to um, to go to the West Coast, and then the rest is history.
0: There is a fair amount of sadness in the form of broken dreams uh, in the book as country music moved away from Chicago. Uh, many musicians who stayed here uh, put down their mandolins and fiddles and took jobs as toll booth workers, or in the case of one woman, a switchboard operator at a local college. So you conducted hundreds of interviews for the book. I'm sure you heard a lot of those stories.
1: Yeah, not just from that time period where the you know barn dance stars that had kind of aged out and time had changed. It was really rock and roll came in, and, and um, but just through a lot of the periods of times where people who hadn't really become huge you know, recording stars, but we're just working musicians. And um, there was not any really many places for them to play anymore. And they'd grown older, and there wasn't much radio for them anymore. WLS had changed to rock and roll. WJJD took over, but even then that, many years later, that changed to uh, pop and rock. And so I did find a lot of people who really had this moment in their life that was so special to them that really was their true selves and then they were just kind of archaic and they had nowhere to go there's a story in the book about I forgot, one of the, there was a sister group in WLS, there were a couple but this one, um, there's a story of her uh, son told me that when he discovered what his mom did in her early life, he really wanted to talk about it and she would just cry, she didn't want to even talk about it you know, and so like that kind of thing, it was just like you know that's 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 uh, pretty deep stuff, and so um, yeah, that that that's kind of throughout throughout the book.
0: You have a chapter focused on Winstrack and the Old Town School of Folk Music, and one on the University of Chicago's Folk Festival, which started in 1961. Uh, the surprising thing for me was reading about a, quote, little chipmunk-faced guy with a flat hat and pea coat on and, quote, named Bobby Zimmerman, who wandered around Hyde Park trying to get a spot on the festival lineup, eventually was rejected. A month or so later, Zimmerman was in New York introducing himself as bob dylan so again chicago starts it all sure we didn't give him a spot on the uh, folk festival yeah
1: that was a part that you know I, I searched high and low for sort of like no one's written about bob dylan spending this time and i mean every arcane part of this guy's life has been like right exhausted by dylanologists
0: yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> I like uh, that. and it
1: seemed nobody really cares no one i mean someone and so i threw a, a lot of you've seen the foot the foot there's a Three million footnotes in oh, yeah, yeah. this book. I kind of yeah. patched together sort of like this journey. He didn't just get in his car in Hibbing, Minnesota and drive to New York. He kind of stopped at different places all along. He was sort of rambling around. And it was totally made sense that he came to Chicago because the University of Chicago Folk Festival was a big deal. And all the music that he was influenced by, and of also not just him, he wasn't crazy. It was his generation of kids who were really, really interested in because they'd heard these recordings of these performers who had recorded, like, in the 30s and 20s, and they're discovering these songs now, and now these people are coming to Chicago to perform. Of course he's going to be in Chicago. It makes sense. You know, so I interviewed a bunch of people who had definitely remembered him hanging around there. There was a guitar shop in, um, on 57th Street that, that was sort of a magnet for kids, including Michael Bloomfield, who later performed with Dylan. Um, I don't think they met there. They met a couple years later. So it was this like kind of bohemian center where like it completely makes sense that he would kind of come here and try to perform there. Instead, he performed in some of the student halls and just kind of hung out. But he was one of a bunch of kids who were doing the same exact thing, playing Woody Guthrie songs with their guitar and trying to fit in and trying to kind of embrace this identity that was really not them and so uh yeah it's a great i i couldn't believe that no one had really kind of put all this together
0: as you were describing his kind of circuitous
1: route i
0: thought oh this reminds me of the coen brothers movie uh with you know oscar isaac and 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 yeah well
1: there's that scene is in my book of um you know the gate of horn was in that movie so that was the folk club that was started by Bob Dylan's manager, Albert Grossman, future manager, Albert Grossman. And so um, the scene where uh, Llewellyn Davis comes to Chicago was a real scene, and it, it's, that, that club was, a again, really influential because it was the first nightclub to present touring folk musicians. The music had been in coffee shops beforehand, little underground clubs. This was a club where you can get dressed up take out your date, you know, get off your job at uh, wherever you are working downtown, and then go to this place and hear these folk musicians, which was completely unique. And that's why a lot of musicians came to Chicago, because they wanted to play like a two-week residency there.
0: As fascinating as I found the music portion of the book, your Tales of the Bars on West Madison Avenue... Uh, The skid row in the 1950s were eye-opening and, quite frankly, a little bit frightening. I mean, some of the stories of, like, bar owners chasing guys down the street. Uh, One bar owner, I I don't remember what caused it, but shot a guy in the foot Mm -hmm. uh, as he was, like, trying to get away. And I thought, (coughs) this is a different time. Like, I can't imagine... Even in my advanced years, having any bar where I would feel unsafe to go in.
1: Well, it's so. funny because they talk about crime in Chicago now. It's part of a mayoral election right now. It was nothing compared to back then. You yeah. know, Where violent, gangland violence was common. There were business owners would fight each other, have gunfights. If you look at the Chicago Daily News, the Chicago Tribune at that time, it's filled with like stories you cannot believe you know there was just like it was a really rough period of time. yeah <laughs> everybody was armed and um and took up took out you know and then you had um these were kind of like honky tonks more or less storefront honky tonks and um and so the music's going on fast <laughs> there's a lot of vice there's a lot of sex and gambling and and so it's like things are going to be you know things are going to explode a, a lot at the same time there's musicians on stage playing music
0: well, and, and you talk about Chicken Wire stages, you know, yeah. John Prine playing, you know, stages at Wrigley Field area mm-hmm. with Chicken Wire, much yeah. like the Blues Brothers, uh, to keep people from throwing stuff at him. That's right. Like, that's just crazy.
1: Yeah, you know? he's, he. Um, there's a great story he told me, John Prine, um, of uh, going to, so we talked all about this, and he said, oh yeah, you know, there was a club near Wrigley Field that my dad took, would take me before we'd go to um, Cubs games and and so I was at the bar with my dad and he said uh, hey I'm gonna give you a little life lesson you know at a place like this you order two beers one to drink and the other hit the guy over the head with when a fight starts he said he found that story very funny later um, I was talking to Joe Shanahan who owns uh, Metro and uh, the Gingerman down there right by Ripley Field and he told me a couple years before John Prine died and John Prine was very much he got really interested in Chicago and his roots here. The last couple of years, he would just show up at places, and one of the places he showed up was the Gingerman, or not? I'm sorry, the G-Man Tavern, which was the Gingerman. And, uh, and Joe Shannon was there at the time, and, and he looked. John Prine's in my bar, and John Prine said, oh, "I used to come in here," and so I figured I think maybe that was the bar he was talking about before he went to Ridley Field with his
0: dad it's amazing to conceive of that I also love speaking to John Prine not to make it a John Prine podcast but as a fan the idea that on his first album where he's pictured with bales of hay he admitted like he had never really been around hay (laughs) before that photo shoot never seen
1: hay never touched hay never sat on hay but -hmm. if you look at a lot of record albums from that time a lot of people are sitting on hay or wearing overalls. Yeah, and yeah it yeah. tells
0: the story at a quick glance, <laughs> yeah, even if it's not that's accurate. Right. That's right. Uh, so, speaking of Uptown, we're here in Uptown. We're at Carol's Pub. <laughs> Carol's Pub has been here since 1972. It is one of the last remaining bars of that era. You devote a good portion to uh, Uptown, which back in the day was called Hillbilly Heaven. How did that nickname come about, and how does it fit into the history of country music in Chicago?
1: The name came about because um, there was a migration here, just like the Great Migration from the Mississippi Delta. um, You know, all the way to the west and south sides, there was a big migration of white Southerners from Appalachia, and they all settled. They spread kind of around, but a lot of them concentrated on here because after the stock market crash of. um, the area really went downhill, of course, right? So because this area was built as sort of a nightlife era with a lot of excessive stuff like nightclubs and bars and big theaters. And the economy couldn't, couldn't um, sustain all these, all this infrastructure up here. So a lot of landlords split up the units into multiple units, more multiple, multiple, multiple units, and uh, housed essentially poor people coming up here with their families looking for work. That caused a big overcrowding problem here. So over the years the, the area kind of deteriorated, and um, uh, there was a lot of um, pe- people really out of work. There was just people also living in the conditions that they just had, were completely not prepared for. Not only is the temperature different up here, you know, winter, um you know it's like people are used to living in rural areas where you have a lot of room and and you there's a lot of beauty now so you're living in an area that's very loud it's very crowded that has rodents that has uh, unsafe conditions for their kids and so all that sort of thing happened but they also brought up their music too so that's kind of like the, the thing is to remember is that there was a lot of music played in this neighborhood, and there were a lot of played played at a lot of storefronts, and there were a lot of musicians living here and songwriters living here, and that was kind of the joy of the neighborhood. There was a lot of commu- really community here and a lot of pride here too, and the pride really came from the pushback that eventually in the 60s, when urban renewal started, and um, the city had plans for this neighborhood to build uh, Truman College on Wilson Avenue to kind of move it past its sort of like slum-like conditions before up to that point there was a lot of resistance to that among the people who lived here and considered it more or less their home and so it became this like it's a very think about it it's not the biggest neighborhood in Chicago but it became this neighborhood where it's sort of like there was a lot of tension between the city and the people who lived here there's a lot of violence and there's a lot of organizing a lot of political organizing and social justice organizing here all that ran at the same time where there was music at all these events um There'd be Saturday night events at community centers where you have a bluegrass band uh, from you know, players who just you were know, working 9 to 5, and Saturday night they would play. And so it, it was a really kind of interesting thing. There was you know, At the same time the city wanted to develop, redevelop the neighborhood, make it a goal upscale, community organizers here had a dream of a self-contained neighborhood called Hank Williams Village.
0: Which, let me stop you right there. Hank Williams had been dead for 15 years Something like by that. this yep. time, right? Yep. And so it was a chance. And again, I, I knew nothing of this until I read it in your book. And then, of course, I was down the rabbit hole. But the idea of creating a self-contained area for Southerners, which you know would have beauty salons, restaurants, whatever, kind of a contained area, sounded pretty wonderful.
1: Yeah. And it was all, and it was getting some financial support, um, and it was getting, like, it, it, it had kind of moved along, and there were some organizers. If you think about it, though, organizing at the time, there was a cultural clash. You know, there was people, there was a lot of pushback against the, that same time the Vietnam War was going on, and people were organizing for people to kind of stand up to the war. They, there was not really a friendly relationship with the uh, first mayor Daly and his administration. And so eventually it was killed, but it did get, it moved along. It it actually had, it was as close to becoming reality as one would think. And enough that there's enough documentation left behind to show what it could have been. And um, yeah, it was amazing. You know, we we hear all the time of planned communities. Um, That's not a foreign concept at all. This was a planned community of people who just wanted like a kind of a small town a small southern town within the north side of chicago that would be for them but yeah it was not it was not to be
0: we are recording this just a few days after wilco played three shows at the nearby riviera theater how important has it been to chicago's americana scene to have bands like wilco based here in the city
1: Well, I mean, I think like any scene, you need to have one or two recognizable big star bands to really draw attention to a scene. And in in the 90s, Wilco was really it. They'd signed a reprise records in in the mid-90s and put out records that were really critically acclaimed and and just sort of like foundational to the scene here. Uh, Jeff Tweedy's wife, Susan Miller, co-owned Lounge Axe, which is a rock club that kind of became sort of the informal headquarters for a lot of this music. And so, like, around Wilco, there was all this excitement for all these other bands, too, that were kind of coming together, and there was a lot of collaboration among all these artists, and so it was this really incredible, healthy scene that I don't think Chicago has seen yet. If you look at, sort of, pick up a Chicago Reader from 1998 or something like that from that point, you would not believe the people playing seven nights a week at all these clubs and all these bills, these triple bills of these artists. There are so many musicians here who also, Wilco, helped bring musicians to move here too because they helped sort of identify a scene that was rich, that was uncompromising, that was uniquely Chicago, that you didn't have to go to Nashville or L.A. or New York to really kind of be seen as legitimate. Um so it was really Chicago became the very envy of um, a lot of other cities and what's interesting about that whole scene is that at the same time that scene was happening there was this rock scene happening as well with the smashing pumpkins and material issue and urge overkill that was a bigger scene that was more identifiable with Chicago so you had these scenes happening kind of at the same time and sometimes they would interact but sometimes they didn't and to me, that just shows that, like, it was an incredible time in Chicago that it sustained all of this music. And I think one of their main reasons was because you, you had the Smashing Pumpkins and Wilco and their different scenes, and that helped really spark all this energy around them. You had all these record labels that were here. You had all these recording studios here. You had a lot of media that was covering stuff here. Every Every daily newspaper had a full time music critic or two or three. And so all the stuff was being covered, but then on top of all that you had an audience that was going out that weren't, you know, connect necessarily connected with the band. They just were it became a normal thing to go see music all the time. And so it was this really vibrant scene that I think that a lot of people didn't realize how unique it was until a lot of it had kind of passed. But I will note, you know, my book's coming out in April, and also it's the exact same time that a lot of the bands in this book are also putting out records. They're still around. Califone has a new record coming out, Robbie Falks has a new record coming out, the Waco Brothers are putting out a new record. Even the Smashing Pumpkins are putting out a new record in May. So a lot of these bands really sustained careers, and I think that really sets up the scene was not a flash in the pan, they sustained really, you know, artists that had longevity.
0: In the book, you write a lot about places in Chicago's music and bar history that helped usher forth the city's role in music. From Crash Palace and Lounge Jacks on Lincoln Avenue, Gate of Horn, Earl of Old Town, In Old Town, Quiet Night, Bar RR, Ranch in the Loop, uh, and about a hundred others. If you could go back in time and spend a long evening at one of those venues, which would it be?
1: Oh, man. That's a tough one I know Well I've been to Lounge X a million times So that's off the list I've done that um, And I think I was at Crash Palace once Um, So I would have to say Which one I would want to be at I think the Earl of Old Town Sounds like it was a similar scene to the hideout So I've been to the hideout a lot So they had kind of a real tight knit community there It sounded like the hideout in the 90s So I'm going to cross that off my list I think that I, I would really wanted to have been in the Bar Double R and the, the Loop, uh, where the Sundowners played, and um, and I probably, and I could have, <laughs> had I known who was running, I probably could have been, because it only, it, it you know, feet, there are people in my book who went and visited it, like John Langford and, boy, a million others, um, and the Sundowners had uh, performed there for three decades, and uh, was the house band there, they played... Um, Boy, I think you know six nights there, and it was the type of bar where you'd go. Very similar to Carol's, you know, where they were the house band. They would play multiple sets a night. They, you know, their their songbook was really really thick. They knew every song, and people would sit in with them. And by all accounts, they were really hot players, and they were just incredible musicians and generous guys. They would let love, a lot love these punk they would let these punk rockers come up on stage play with them. It sounded like a really great scene. And also I hear that it had really great chili. So, and it was in it was in a basement too. So I think that it just sounded, the photos. But I could kind of go there a little bit because the tables that were in that bar, they, they allowed people to etch their names with a knife on all the tables. And those tables are around the hideout. So if you go to the hideout, you'll see those tabletops. Either they're on the wall or they're actually being used as tables. And I think John Langford has a couple of them as well. So The, the tabletops were saved, so I think I can go there and uh, touch those and feel that maybe uh, and, and imagine what it was like to be there.
0: Mark has a ton of events coming up over the next couple months promoting the book. Some of them include uh, a little, you know, Q&A followed by music events. So if you're in the Chicago area, there are links to all the ways you can find out about these events. Go see them. Get your book signed. uh, Support local music wherever you can. Support local authors whenever you can. And get out and learn something new about the greatest city in the world. Mark Reno, thank you very much for uh, meeting with me today.
1: Uh, It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thanks for the drink.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode about country and Midwestern, Chicago in the History of Country Music, and the Folk Revival. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Tommy Henry. Special thanks to Mark Guarino for not only writing a fantastic book, but for offering me his time to talk about his work. There are links to Mark's book in the show's notes. If you or someone you know is a history and music nerd like me, who would like to learn more? Anything ordered through those links, not just the items listed, may earn a small commission for the podcast and help offset production costs at no additional cost to you. Check out the Chicago History Podcast Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages for articles and pictures related to this episode and past episodes posted throughout the week. Much of the original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, Johnny. He can be found at Angel Eyes art JKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.